Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Desgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast. And what is this a podcast of? Of happiness and wellness, amazing stories, amazing people. And yes, I do sprinkle a little medicine on there. And today, we do have an amazing guest. We have an actual CEO, I just dig that, uh, for a company <laughs> called Inspire. And I made some hand gestures when I was doing that. I actually, there's a backstory where I actually did something with Inspire not too long ago, and it was actually for a disease state I'm so passionate about called sarcoid. It was an online thing. I think I was friends with Inspire for about five to seven days, and I met all these amazing patients online. I heard their stories. They kind of made me tear up a little bit. I gave some tips and pearls. But because we had a good interaction with Inspire, I was so fortunate to find out that their CEO was nice enough to come on my podcast to kind of explain what is this Inspired. I'm still trying to figure it out too. Just joking. But before I introduce uh, the, uh, you know, Brian Lowe, I have to read his uh, bio. Does my fans, you know what I do first. This is how we do things. So Brian created Inspire in 2005 with the goal of accelerating medical progress by engaging patients and caregivers in safe, trusted online communities. Over the past 17 years, he has grown the company to be the leading digital space for health with more than 10 million visitors annually who join Inspire to discuss more than 3,000 health conditions. Brian has built a network of dozens of nonprofit partners, including the American Lung Association, Mental Health America, and the Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance, who rely on Inspire for safe, moderated spaces where their members can receive trusted information and support. Brian has been an entrepreneur since 1994 when he founded WorldWeb.net, a content management software company that created and launched over 100 websites for major publishers, including U.S. News and World Report, the Hachi Filipachi, or Hachet Filipachi, I knew I was going to screw that up, Time Warner, and the Washington Post Company. He has degrees in physics and economics from the George Washington University and sits on the board's of the Robert Packard Center for ALS Research at John Hopkins and New Jersey's Goals of Care and was a, quote, red jacket, end quote, recipient <laughs> from Pharma Voice Magazine for his contributions in the industry. Brian is a regular author and speaker on topics related to e-health, patient empowerment, and healthcare social media. Brian lives in the Washington, D.C. area with his wife and two children, and of course, their dog, Puddle. <laughs> and with that being said, Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, and thank you for, thank you for inviting me. This is, it's great to meet you. I've been listening to your podcast, and I heard your recent one with Mary McGowan, who I know, and, uh, and also your, your recent one talking about your own um, health, and I just found it really inspiring, and I'm glad to be here. Thank you. 
Oh, you are so welcome. You're so welcome. You know, when you first popped up on my uh, my screen, you put your dog, you know, Puddle there. And I'm like, you need to get a haircut or some kind of shape or something <laughs> like that. How, how old is Puddle? And is, is Puddle really part of the family? Puddle is. She's she's seven, I, I think, and she's part of the family. And yeah, she's a very lovable Labradoodle. Yeah. I know I, I got kind of bullied into getting a, a golden doodle, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. How yeah. We, we named yeah. our dog Clifford. So who who was the the motivation behind Puddle? Was it the kids or was it you? It, it, yeah, it was uh, it was it was my son, one of our kids, who uh, declared that she was the color of a puddle. And so it, it stuck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I yeah. try to tell my kids Clifford in the historic book world is red. Our dog is right. Red. That's right. <laughs> How but do you, you like know, your, how's your golden doodle? Yeah, are exactly. You, are you, yeah, you, yeah. As you know, Brian, you can never win like arguments with kids. It's, it's already right. lost to begin with. With this being said, I want to talk about the digital health space. I, I'm very confused about it. So sure, you, know, sure. you started off with, you know, economics, you did some physics. How does that lead into the digital health space? What drew you to that? You know, if we, if we go back in time, say 15 years ago to when we started Inspire, it was a time when there was there was online health in mostly in message boards and kind of old school um, forums. And it was really kind of an unruly place. You know, you had social networks like um, Facebook and some of the very early social networks, but there were no social networks at the time for health. And the health spaces that you did find online were often, some of them were very, were, were clean and safe and other ones were kind of overrun by spam and were unmoderated. And I think at the time, it was because a lot of these spaces were started by people who had a serious medical condition or the parents of children with a medical condition, and they were kind of missions of love to sort of, you know, support someone. And, but then, you know, but it takes a lot of energy to, to, to moderate and, and support a community. And so, it, you know, it takes, it takes a lot to run them. And so some of them, sometimes they would fall into disarray or they would be, they're just, it was a tough, it was a tough kind of thing. So I felt like this could be done. Um, better, better in the sense that we could create a safe online space for patients and caregivers um, to come for support. And I had a friend who suggested that we reach out to patient advocacy organizations. And Amy and I realized that we had met one another way back then when she was at the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. We went to patient advocacy organizations and asked them if they would like to be part of this community. And at the time we did it, this was an early idea and it was sort of unusual for patient advocacy groups. But over time, that became a real differentiator for us. Now we have about 100 of those partners, ones that, that you mentioned before. And it's become a really um, nice model where these, these partners, whether it's a Foundation for Sarcoidosis Research or the American Lung Association, they are the subject matter experts, which we do not pretend to be. And they're happy for us to kind of run the community. By that, we mean moderate it, support it, take care of the hardware and software and community and help desk and all that. Um, and they play the role of medical experts or subject matter experts. And it, it's a partnership that works really, really beautifully. And, you know, I love, I didn't know that you kind of paired up with CDF, cystic fibrosis. So just to brag about, you know, USC, we are a foundation of excellence for CF. And I, you know, I just right. rounding, I'm part of the CF service right now. So no, that's amazing because, you know, it's so hard yeah. being young and having a chronic genetic disorder. And, you know, it's, it's not just giving the information out, but relating to those patients that, it's not easy to spend your life, you know, injecting yourself with insulin and doing your best therapy. Sure. Every day. So good for right. company right. for being involved with that. I'm so proud of you guys. No, thank you. And I should just make a small correction. We ended up, um, I met Amy, I think when Inspire was probably 
a couple of weeks old or something. You know, we got introduced by a, a friend. And actually, Cystic Fibrosis Foundation did not become a partner. They were one of the ones that we didn't win over in the early days. <laughs> because it was, it was really a new idea. I mean, it was okay. pretty edgy. <laughs> it, was, it was really a new idea. Um, but anyway, if we had it to do over again, I, I would have found a way. So, I know yeah, you yeah. would. I know yeah, you would. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny. We're talking about social media and, you know, finding a trusted platform. And I'm just, I'm just going to wing this a little bit because it just happened like two seconds ago. So I got an right. interview with actually a magazine about this new thing trending on TikTok that's scaring me. And that's why it's yeah. important to have a sure. moderated, you know, platform. Have you heard of something called sleep rotting? No, I have That's a look on my face when they presented it wow, to me. Wow, what is that? that? This is wow. the biggest trend on TikTok right now, that they're encouraging you to stay in bed for hours to days. And people are like, yeah, that's a great idea. <laughs> you know what I mean? So <laughs> we, you only can imagine what right. said, But that's why we need companies like Inspire to help regulate, to get the right messages out there. You know, right. and the thing that right. scares me is that they're trying to encourage this if you have depression, anxiety, all these things. Right. I wouldn't stay in bed if I had those things. So it's good that you're there. So yes, I understand why you went to the digital health space. So what prompted you to found Inspire? And can you tell in layman's terms about the platform? Meaning that sure. if you don't know much about that world, from a patient's point of view, what is it? How do you explain it to Sure. Them? And interestingly, Inspire is a blend of patients, caregivers, and and some you know friends and family. And uh Early on, we decided we weren't going to use the patients. There's nothing wrong with that word, but for a lot of newly diagnosed people, they don't want to, I mean, all of us, we don't necessarily want to self-diagnose, self-describe ourselves as a patient. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of a loaded word, even though at some point in our life, all of us are patients of one kind or another, right? Or caregivers, well right? Said. Even if you're well perfectly said. healthy, at some point in your life, you're a caregiver. So we call them members and members join Inspire. We set up an environment where we, we preserve your anonymity. So all we need from you to join is your email address, we ask for your location and your gender, and gender isn't even required, right? And then we ask you a bunch of optional questions. What medical condition are you interested in? Are you a patient or caregiver? What are your symptoms? What are your treatments? And all those questions are optional. And, and the reason for that is that even though we know we can give you a better experience if you're willing to share those data, we also know that you may not be comfortable sharing it on day zero. One of the things we've we've learned a lot about trust and that it's earned over time and that it's the one thing that you can't ask for. You know, I can't say trust me because you don't know me, right? But over time, we can prove to you as a member that we are trustworthy. And the anonymity plays a big role here. So it's it's actually pseudo-anonymity in the sense that you might be um, Dr. Raj, but we're not asking you for your real name or your street address or your phone number. And that's okay. And you can have this persistent identity and inspire as Dr. Raj and you can interact with people, but you, there's, there's zero um, need to give up your name. And the reason I'm talking about this is it's kind of an important um, foundational principle for us, which is that I think there are a lot of interactions with the healthcare system where you as a patient at a vulnerable point, oftentimes feel like you have to give up a ton of things that you're not necessarily comfortable with in order to receive care. And not that we're providing care, but in order to receive support. And so we felt that that's really important. We found that that model works really well. So anyway, so you join, you're now part of uh, one or more communities. And so uh, if you were in the sarcoidosis community, for example, you might you might start off reading what other people are writing, and then you might write yourself, you might get answers, you can form friends, like a, you know, a real social network. And there are tons and tons of friendships in Inspire, and there are even two marriages that we know of. You know, which is, So it's really, really a real community. There are groups of members in our ovarian cancer community who get together in real life every year. And there are kind of lots of things that sort of cross over into friendships that have lasted a really long time. So anyway, that's kind of the experience. It's a social network for health. 
where you can feel safe and secure and meet lots of other people who are going through the same thing that you are. No, I love it. Well said. And, you know, I love the fact that you corrected me because it's it's kind of the mean doctor in me. Everyone's just a patient. Well, I love that yeah. because it's less intimidating. It may, it yeah. does give that more of that family feel. And you're right. right. It wasn't only people that were patients that I was talking to. And right. I need trying right. to get other people involved. So that that's nice. Well said. One of the things that's occurred to me over the last 15 years yeah. is that the role of patients and doctors and the relationship between patients and doctors has it seems to me anyway that it's evolved dramatically. I'm curious from your perspective whether it seemed that way also. But um, there's a lot of conversation in Inspire about relationships with doctors and how patients want to feel the relationships with their doctors are. If you want, we could talk, we could go deep there as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I could go down that rabbit hole pretty fast, but I mean, yeah. I don't have questions. I want to make sure I go to these questions. Sure. You're just telling me you want to come on again. That's all you're telling me, dude. <laughs> anytime, anytime. <laughs> but let's talk about, you know, I mean, a belief that I think you have, which is why do you believe what we call patient centricity is sure. so vital to inspire and healthcare as a whole? I think growing up when you went to the doctor, the doctor was this godlike figure, oftentimes, right? Who had there was an incredible information asymmetry, right? It was really hard as a patient even to get information, even if you were highly educated in general. I remember when I was a kid, the physician's desk reference that huge book with all the drugs in it. Uh, you couldn't even buy it as a civilian. Like you literally couldn't get your hands on this. And this was before the World Wide Web. So if you came home with a new prescription, you know, you could read the label, but it was really, very hard unless you lived near a university library to learn more about this treatment, right? And mm -hmm. so then with the World Wide Web, everything changed where suddenly someone who wanted to learn could do research, right? And then they could come to the doctor's office and, and have a, a conversation where there was, they, they'd been able to learn more. And so I think there are a lot of other experiences where patients talk about their interactions with hospitals or insurance companies where they feel like it's not about them, right? They feel like it's about the insurance company or the hospital or the institution or and there's a lot of that. And I guess we've always felt that the health system should be designed in the world, should be designed with the patient at the center and everything else kind of orbiting around it, right? I'll just make one point about that, which is that this doesn't mean that the patients have the most expertise, like on the contrary, but what the patients are saying is that they want to be treated as though it's about them, right? Not in a selfish way, right? So this notion of patient centricity has now, at the time Inspire was started, that was kind of a new idea, or it was it was one that was still controversial. I feel like today we've come a, a long way where I, I think it's well understood. A lot of people talk about it and you see the relationships changing where um, patients feel that they want to be able to have a partnership or conversation with their doctor. And even yeah. if they, even though they think of their doctor as the expert, they really want to feel like they are being heard and paid it, you know, and, and thought of that way. No, and anyway. that, that response echoes what I hear almost every day in, day out from the actual patients I see. So this right. leads me to my next question, which is going to be, sure. You know, so far, what has been the most surprising thing that you have learned from the members on Inspire? There is an incredible amount of camaraderie and empathy among patients. Watching someone who's newly diagnosed with a condition meet someone else who's had the condition for a while, and then watching them deal with it. And by the way, I'm saying condition. It could be something that is life-threatening, or it could be something that is not life-threatening, but still really painful or annoying, or it could be something that's happy, like having a baby or, you know, training for a marathon, wh whatever the human experience is, just watching people um, come together, support one another and interact is something I thought I understood, but really didn't. I mean, we, some of the things that we see members write to each other and support is just, it makes you feel so great about humanity, right? That, uh, that our ability to support one another when given a safe space to do it has enormous potential. And, and one thing I learned when I was, you know, hanging out with Inspire was, 
man, patients know their stuff sometimes. They they made me, <laughs> they really made right. me try to become, go back to the library or go online to really kind of research some of these questions. So I think one thing I could improve a lot on is that, you know, I think it's natural when you first meet someone to kind of take down the language, take down the, the, the doctor jargon as much as possible, but don't underestimate. Some of them right, are smarty right, pants out right, there, you know? Right, That's a really good point. Vocabulary can be a barrier sometimes because you've learned very, you know, you've learned a lot of scientific vocabulary that patients patients might not know uh, the words, but they certainly, they may, they may have learned a lot about the condition that they want to share with you, right? Yeah. So I'm glad that you appreciate that as well. Yeah. The members, why do you, why do you think they trust the Inspire platform so much? Yeah, maybe a couple of reasons. One is that I think because we're not, um, insisting or demanding or requesting that they give us their real name and all of these data. I think there's a feeling that there's not that we're not there just to suck the marrow out of them. Um, that's not why we exist. The, the second reason, maybe it's a big part of it, is those patient advocacy organizations are really thought of as you know credible, authoritative, trustworthy, and they're kind of a seal of approval. We, by the way, um, behind the scenes, we work really hard to be a great partner to those advocacy groups, and I think it does create a, a real environment of trust as well. And then the last thing I'll mention is just because we have live human moderators that are there to support them, members see that when they have trouble, they're supported. When they, once in a while, when an argument breaks out, a moderator, you know, gently breaks up the fight. Um, I think that creates a, a supportive environment that they trust. Yeah. You know, yeah. I never had my moderator jump in. So <laughs> you're probably well behaved. Enough yeah. on there. You know what I mean? I got to take up the spice a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's pretty rare that fights break out, but they're, you know, it's not like a, you know, a politics community or something, but, um, but yeah, occasionally, occasionally. No, I, sometimes it's nice to know that someone's actually there and cares. I think it provides that caring right. feel there. I, I do like That's that. Right. That's so, right. So, you know, we're joking a little bit about TikTok and sleep rotting and yeah. other online stuff. So yeah. what makes Inspire different from other online health communities? Because there are other ones out there, you know, you're not. For sure. Really For one. sure. So how do you differentiate yeah. that? For sure. And by the way, you know, in the early days of Inspire, I thought, oh gosh, there can be only one, like, you know, we, we these competitors are, but then I think what you learn over time is they're just different and there are different spaces that people go. And mm -hmm. sometimes people are members of multiple communities and that's okay. I, I think the difference that Inspire is mm -hmm. one, the partnerships that we talked about too, there's a lot of kind of depth of response. I mean, sometimes people write hundreds or even thousands of words and they'll share photos and videos. There's a lot of depth of what they're, what they're willing to share. And because it's moderated, that also sets it apart from other spaces where it's unclear what's going to happen, you know, behaviorally. We also make strong promises to our members that we're never going to sell their email address, that we're not going to, they're like a list of things that we won't do. And, and the last thing is that we're only about health, right? So if we were to try to be a community for every topic under the sun, I don't think we could do health well. I think we feel that health is special and we really need to focus on that. And, you know, I'll just say this. I do love the fact that you have a nice collection in the Inspire catalog because you do have some rare diseases, sarcoid. Right. You do have, unfortunately, very common cancers that people have to deal with. I like that. I think it's very important. And, you know, I went to the American Thoracic Society, and I there's mm. so many groups that need to be have a platform similar to Inspire, mm -hmm. whether it's Pratter-Willi, mm -hmm. whether it's yeah. going to be Alpha-1 yeah. antitrypsin. And I got to yeah. tell you, I have a big thing because my eight-year-old son has autism. Oh. If you do an autism thing, dude, you got me at a low. And maybe yeah. not just you – know, yeah. not just – you know, focusing on the kids, but also something for the parents. Yep, yep, idea that's right. right I think that would be great. For sure. <laughs> for sure. A lot of the communities are are composed mostly of parents of children with a rare disease or a, or another yes. condition. And 
And so let me just say this, you know, and just kind of cascade on that. So, you know, having partnerships, you know, of course, I'm going to mention, you know, the group that made us friends, you know, FSR, Foundation of Sarcoidosis Research. What does that mean to you to be partnering with, with, with groups like this? I mean, it's wonderful. FSR was actually one of our earliest partners. Um, I was speaking at a conference in Boston, and after after the talk, someone came to talk to me, someone in the audience, and it turned out that he was a member of the FSR board. Uh, he himself has sarcoidosis, and we became friends. And um, and it, this was, again, early days of Inspire, and he um, totally got it. And that was what led to them being an early partner. Um, today, I was in a in a conversation um, with Amy and some others with the Ovarian Cancer Research Alliance. And um, just getting to know these partners, what I found is they are some of the most dedicated people I've ever met. Many of them started these out of passion, or they're working there because it's a topic they care passionately about. Um, these um, nonprofits make such an impact on patients' lives. You know, I want to thank sort of my friend Valerie who came up with this idea in the beginning. I can't claim credit for that, but it's been, I think, one of the most important things we've ever done. It just everything happens for a reason. You know, I, I've been actually fortunate and unfortunate to be involved with cases of you know women with ovarian cancer. It's so such a horrible, horrible disease. No, no cancer is yeah. good, but right. it, it's so right. aggressive by the time it's diagnosed, it's in a higher stage, and they yeah. really need a platform just to vent. And, yeah, you know, yeah. I, was go- I was looking at their treatment plans. I can't even understand their treatment plans. because There's so many new things coming out beyond my scope. So yeah. that would yeah. be a place where they could actually get information, you know, cry, laugh, yeah. you know, yeah. get frustrated, yeah. you know. So yeah. I love that you're sure. doing that. I really do. I really do. Thank you. So I, I got to hear some 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 good stories. I love stories. That's what <laughs> my podcast is all about. So if you could share a very special or a success story from Inspire, sure. what would you tell me and my listeners? There's one kind of big one that was from early on that stands out to me, which is just still kind of stunning to me. There's um, as, as you know, there's this heart condition called SCAD, spontaneous coronary artery dissection, and uh, I, I didn't used to know what that was, but then I learned a lot about it because what happened was. A member joined our Women Heart community, you know, long ago, and she described herself as just having had a SCAD, um, which, as as we understood at the time, was fatal about half the time that it occurs, uh, something like that. And it was also, I think, at the time, poorly understood. Anyway, so so she joined and she sort of asked, described her story. She was either from Australia or Israel, and then sometime after that, a second member joined from the other country, and they connected across the world about the fact that they both had a SCAD. And then there was a snowball effect that ultimately reached more than 300 women who described themselves as having a scad. And um, at some point, there was a Beyonce song called uh, All the Ladies Stand Up. And so one of the women in the group dubbed the group the scad ladies. And um, they got together and went to the Mayo, to the annual health summit at Mayo. There was a patient center at, I, I can't remember what it was called, but at Mayo. And they met a, a cardiologist there named Dr. Hayes, Sharon Hayes. And they kind of brought their story to her. And she immediately realized what was happening here, which was that at the time, the largest study that had been done on on SCAD was something like 28 patients. And here at the time, 77 women brought themselves to her and said, you know, we want you to study us, right? And so she she took it on and she coined this phrase called um, patient-initiated research, right? Which I thought was a wonderful term where these patients in this case were, were not saying we're the experts, but they were saying, we're here to help you, the expert, understand this disease, right? And the power of that uh, made such an impact on us because I think it just reinforced the ideas of patient centricity that patients can play a really meaningful role in medical progress. 
Um, so it's a story that I'm still happy about. Yeah. I love that story. I like the little yeah. Beyonce thing you put in there too, you know? <laughs> I, <laughs> that was my, great. I can't that take credit great. for it. Yeah. Um, all right. I want to hear more. I want to hear more. So time does fly. So I mean, yeah. in the last 15 years, what's been like um, one of the biggest, the bigger, the biggest lesson you've learned? And what are you most excited about going yeah. towards yeah. the future? One of the things I think about a lot is, um, you know, if you have data on one patient or if you have data on yourself, it's an N of one. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can draw some assumptions from it, but it's when you start to have larger numbers, dozens or hundreds or sometimes thousands of people where you can start to see correlations that weren't immediately obvious, right? Um, yeah. And I mean, I know that's an obvious statement, but but one of the things here is that when we have all these patients together, sometimes they share data with one another and we can start to, they can start to learn from one another. And um, one of the things we are working a, a lot on right now is being able to visualize these data to share them back with with the members. So the idea would be that you could share information about yourself, again, anonymously, and then understand your own data better, but also be able to look at yourself compared to hundreds or thousands of other people. One of the things uh, I've come to realize is, you know, all of us, whether we enunciate or not, if we're struggling with, with a medical condition, there's a voice inside our head that's sort of asking uh, two things. Like, number one is, am I okay, right, whether we say it or not? And the second is, you know, is this normal? Is it, is it normal to have migraine headaches twice a week? Is it normal that I feel this exhausted after chemotherapy? Is it normal that, you know, my preemie is awake at three o'clock in the morning with acid reflux? Whatever it is, right? You don't really have a way of knowing unless you look at your peers. And I think we're at a point now where the ability to, for hundreds or thousands of people with similar conditions to share information in a way that makes them want to compare themselves so they understand themselves better. So that's what we're working on actively now is um, is finding ways to let members share information with one another in, in ways that preserve their anonymity. I, I liked it. We, you know, I was discussing with your team in the background, what would be one of the, the nice closing questions they were suggesting to be doing something up to date? You know, what's going on right sure. now? So sure. this is great timing because, you know, I do see a lot of people with obstructive sleep apnea. I do right. see a lot of people because they're on steroids for underlying disease. They've gained a lot of weight. And... Um, a lot of people have type 2 diabetes. And one of the hottest sure. drugs out there now right. are these injectables called GLP-1. And I'm going to, since right. I'm going to play doctor for a second, that stands for sure. glucagon-like peptide agonist. And these are injectables, right? And they're for diabetics. But one of the side effects, and I don't want to say side effects because I guess I'll just say benefit, is that right. you lose weight. Right. And they do have catchy commercials, I got to tell you. And, uh, they do. I just saw a couple of patients in my clinic and I didn't mean to do this, but the minute they told me they're taking a brand name Ozempic, I started doing, Oh, 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 (laughs) Ozempic. You know, you just jingle. So my question to you is this, there's good and bad about this. So with the rise in these popularity of these injectable drugs, you know, FDA approved for diabetes and some are approved for weight loss. There's so many memes out there, probably not doing it justice. There's Manjaro's and Trulicides and Ozempic. They all can pay us money for me using these names, you know, Uh, some are still off label. What hurdles do you see for people with diabetes in terms of, you know, shortages? And what do you think this means for the landscape of prescription drugs for diabetes. I'm going to put you on the right. spot here. No, sure. I'm happy to. And coincidentally, I'm a I'm a type one diabetic. Um, oh. I have been since. Yeah. Uh, oh man, I'm teaching since, to the choir. Yeah. You can teach me about this. <laughs> well, no, I mean, um, I have been since age ten, right? And so, yeah. like, you know, ever since I was a kid. Um, yeah. And I've been taking insulin ever of since course. then. And and I think the question you're asking about Ozempic um, in type in type one or or, or type two, uh, mm-hmm. I've heard people ask, is the use of these glucose monitors by non-diabetics 
threatening the supply for diabetics, right? It's a, it's a related question. Yeah. And, I, and I think there are, really, there are really two things going on. One is, one is about affordability, which is a huge issue in America anyway and all over the world and to, to varying degrees. But um, some of these drugs, like the one that you mentioned and also continuous glucose monitors are, mm-hmm. are super expensive. And mm-hmm. we could probably do another episode if you want on affordability. <laughs> and like, I won't, I won't go down that rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. But if we put that aside for a second, I actually think that from a supply perspective, it's a, it's a good thing. And this might be controversial, but if you take okay. continuous glucose monitors, what I would want is for there to be many manufacturers competing with each other to build the best glucose monitors at the lowest cost, right? That's, I want competition there. I don't want there to be one manufacturer. Similarly, if there's enormous demand for Ozempic from non-diabetics for whatever reason, mm-hmm. um, it'll lead to more innovation and, and ideally you know, drive competition and, and better drugs and lower prices. That's a separate question. I know that you as a doctor are thinking, well, there are probably a lot of people going on these drugs who don't need to be on these drugs or shouldn't be on these drugs or they're ignoring the um, adverse events. And, uh, and I think those are really important medical questions. But I I don't worry about the supply and the shortages only because if there's anything good industry, if there's anything industry is good at, it's kind of responding to demand, you know, and, and making more. <laughs> these things aren't inherently scarce resources. We're not going to, we're not going to run out of the building blocks for these drugs. But as long as we can take care of affordability and access, which I'm passionate about, um, I think the more the merrier as far as co- competition is concerned. No, and, and let, now you're making me dorky medical and I, yeah. I, glucose monitoring. I think that, no, I am a big fan of, and I think that it's, you know, continuous glucose monitoring, the way I think about it for a diabetic, and I'm, I'm sure to the choir here, is kind of like, you know, driving your car. If you don't have right. your windshield blocked off and you're only right. wiping off the windshield every 20 minutes, you don't know where you're going. So, Absolutely. And so to have some of the new technology out there, Absolutely. you know, but I definitely feel that, you know, yeah. doctors, I want to point the finger yeah. at us, we sometimes just say, oh, you're a diabetic? you need a glucose yeah. monitor. And if they're only right. taking like a, maybe a metformin sure. by itself, I don't think so. Sure. Taking insulin, that's sure. a whole right. different thing. And I agree. I like that these, they're getting the technology to get better and better. Yeah. Yeah. And I was saying yeah. also, you know, the GLP-1 analogs, it's funny that you said like pharmacy finds a way or industry finds a way. Because now right. Right. One of the bigger topics are they're doing these biosimilars, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, which are not mm-hmm. the drug itself, but very similar to. So very Jurassic Park of you to say they find a way to, to go around these. Well, things. right, right. And no, and as you know, it, it's really yeah. uh, the, the, the regulatory process um, means mm-hmm. that bringing a new drug to market is is really tough, even when it's a biosimilar. And yeah. you know, this issue has come up with, with similar insulins as well as you know, all these really large molecule, you know, mm-hmm. uh, biologic drugs. It's, and it's something that, which, again, comes back to access to care. And I, I think what all of us want as, as patients and health consumers is for there to be a really, you know, vibrant market of innovation with new treatments um, yeah. and for them to be available to us, right? So I guess, I, I guess I, I'm on the side of innovation here. Yeah. And I think that's where Inspire could help people because, you know, more and more people are going on these GLP-1 analogs, you know what I mean? To right. help form, to complain, to talk about side effects like a pancreatitis, like all the things uh, they've experienced, that will be great. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot of conversation in Inspire about people saying, uh, my doctor just prescribed XYZ. Mm-hmm. Here's what I'm dealing with. What have all of you found? And the amount of advice, practical advice they get is incredible, you know? Yeah. And what they're not doing is playing doctor. They're not adjusting each other's dosage, right? They're just saying, <laughs> here's how I deal, <laughs> I you know, which is a good thing, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they're just talking about the practicalities yep. of, of how they how they deal with it. And that's 
that's super valuable. Yeah. And I think to where someone like me or any other doctor endocrinologist involved could always get a little reminder, which is what worries me, which is, you know, I don't want my patients to go away from exercise and diet and some of the foundation you do with it and only right. rely right. on the injection itself. You know what I mean? Right. Well, I got to tell you, Brian, you, you did a great job. You survived all the questions and you're still smiling. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. No, this is wonderful. I really enjoyed your questions and conversations. And um, um, I've been listening to a number of your other podcasts. I think you're doing wonderful work. And I really appreciate what you're bringing to your audience. Well, thank you so much. And you know what? I may take you up on that offer. Bring you back. Anytime. Sound good? Anytime. Hey, everyone. You know what? That was quick. That was such a great podcast. I love the banter we had. And I hope everyone enjoyed it also. So stay tuned for the next Dr. Raj podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.